Today's reading is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. It can be found on page 638 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's Word. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. God of grace, some of us are here today and the words off these pages are deeply meaningful and we embrace them, perhaps some of us embracing them with our lives, looking for them to be at the center of our life, to direct us, to clear out the fog of our spiritual outlook and give us clarity. We look at them as words that are unchanging written by human hands, but inspired by you. And the truth is that not everyone is at that kind of a place, and not everyone at City Life Church is in that kind of a place. And some of us sit and we are in process with these words. Maybe we have complete skepticism about looking at these words that way, and maybe we have a marginal adoption of of what's going on in these pages. But may may we be at least humble enough before these words to admit to you, if to no one else, that we don't have all the answers and that spiritually speaking, we're here for a reason, that we get stuck, that we need help, that we at least wonder, at the very least we wonder if maybe we don't completely know the way ourselves. We need you, the God of Advent, the God of coming to arrive into our lives. And we hope maybe these words are where it happens. And maybe the grace that meets us before we've even done anything to deserve 
your love, that kind of grace might become clear to us in this season. Would you do that through these words? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. City Life Church is four years old plus a couple of months. And uh, so we are a church plant. And uh, the Christian faith believes that people who are healed and put back together, restored in a sense, by the grace of God, by their connection to God through Jesus. Those kind of people then go out to heal the city and the world around them, go out to, to live actually quite dramatically unselfish lives towards those around them. Um, in those communities we call churches, of people who have, or in some way, in some part of the process of having that encounter with God where selfishness becomes irrelevant because your greatest needs have been met. Now all that's left to do is be selfless. So imagine a community of people like that and you imagine something pretty powerful in this world and in cities. And so part of City Life Church's mission at the end of it is to serve. And we do that through, actually through being a part of, and hopefully increasingly in the future, but already being a little bit of a part of starting other churches. We think having churches, and this is countercultural, but to have another church here or there in different neighborhoods is good for the city and good for the world. And a year ago, well, I'll just read this text message I got this morning. This is from Eric Dirksen in Davis, California. Davis, California, where it's been making the headlines lately. Got the pepper spray. There's the, the, the science guy. Have you heard about the student at UC Davis who's attempting to um, get the word hella into scientific parlance? You know, like, like it had a lot of watts. It's not megawatts. It's more. It, it was hella watts. I'm not kidding. That's, that's a real news story from this week. Um, so anyway, Eric Dirksen is starting a church in that fun town called Davis. And, um, one, and he writes this to me this morning. This is what I get on my phone when I'm getting breakfast and coffee ready. One year ago, City Life turned out in full force for our first service. Just wanted to say thanks. Happy Advent. I thought that was pretty cool. And then I replied, you're welcome. Do you have any ideas for an opening sermon illustration? And then he didn't reply, and I started thinking, ah, maybe the text itself. Um, so, so what's interesting about that is that they started at the beginning of the season of Advent. They started a new church in Davis, Advent, week one. And, you know, that seems unusual. That doesn't seem likely. You would think if you have any church experience at all, you'd start, you'd just go with January, you know, the first Sunday in January maybe, or you maybe know from certain churches that they have, you know, their programmatic launching point is September, you know, when everybody's back from vacation, so you start there. Or, or you know, you really want to go with a bang, you start on Easter at some point. But Advent, the first Sunday of Advent, to actually, I think, a really cool place to put the starting marker because it's actually... I mean, Advent is, is, in a sense, it's a made-up thing the church has done throughout the years for, for centuries... It's the, it's the season of the church calendar, which just helps us walk through the Christian year and kind of get the full orbed view of what the life of Jesus was all about. 
and how that fits into the big story of the Christian faith. So it just kind of gives you benchmarks along the year. Advent is, and this Sunday would be day number one in the Christian year. If you're following at all that, that calendar and kind of saying, well, we're going to walk along the life of Jesus until Easter. You know, that's basically, it's from now until Easter. And, um, and then you've got kind of the Easter season in ordinary time, and no one really knows what happens in that, that, those spaces. But at least during Advent, from now till Easter, we kind of do a lot with this, this life of Jesus. And in Advent, um, you've already seen from what has been a part of this service what Advent is about, what, we, what, it's, you know, what it's called. There's a note in the worship guide about it. I want to talk about, as we begin, and as you think about entering this season yourself, and maybe having it be a part of your rhythm from now until the end of the year, is three things that this passage of Isaiah tells us, basically, to take along for the journey. Three tools for an, for a, an Advent adventure, if you will. An Advent pilgrimage, an a- Advent sojourn. Three things that you want to take along. The first is Joy. Joy. Um, I, I saw, I got the privilege about a, a week and a half ago to see the noted scholar from, from Britain. His name is N.T. Wright. He's written a lot of books that we've even focused on in some of our groups and studies. So as he was talking, he told this joke, and I'll see if I can get it right. It's not the kind of joke I would make up or normally pass on, except that I'm a preacher, so I'm going to pass this one on. It went like this. He was talking about the cultural kind of apathy of, post, of the postmodern world we live in. And, and he used this joke. He said there was a lecturer, a famous lecturer uh, who was an uh, expert in linguistics, talking about how in, in some languages a double negative means a positive, and in other languages a double negative means a negative. But in no language at any time does a double positive mean a negative. And some young person from the back said, yeah, yeah. I thought... <laughs> pretty clever and sometimes you feel like you know we in our culture there's a certain amount of just to just about anything there's this anti-exuberance culture of yeah yeah you know whatever who cares um and i i noticed this um i think part of there's a northern californian strand of this it's particularly strong because of the kind of twin rebel movements of skaters and punk rockers that are that have influenced culture around here i was at a skate park with my boys and um, making a fool out of myself because I was trying to do some of the stuff. But I was watching some of these experts over here doing these, these jumps, and they were doing these things where they jump off the ground and the board would, uh, I don't know the lingo yet, I'll get there, I'm sure, but the board, they do what's called an ollie, and the thing goes off the ground, and they, they're jumping off the ground, and the board does this just miraculous spinning twist thing in the air, maybe a couple of revolutions, and then they land on it again when they come down. And I'd watch these guys, and I'd watch them, you know, fail about as many times as they succeed as they're trying these tricks. But then when, when the guy, there was one guy who was really good one day when I was there, and he, when he would land it, and he would land it a lot, he would just act as if nothing had happened. And I wanted to scream and shout out and clap and say, yeah, and everyone else is just sitting there so cool. And this guy, you would have thought that his mother had forced him to go to a skate park and do these dumb tricks. I mean, it was like, you know... And this, I think this is part of our culture. And when Isaiah foreshadows God's salvation to us and to everyone else throughout the world and to our culture, maybe an anti-exuberance culture, perhaps, he pulls out the, the strongest, deepest analogies that he can find. 
when he's announcing God's coming. Um, and it, it, this is what it's saying, is that it's so terribly important when meditating on the Christmas child's arrival that it moves you. It moves you past, yeah, yeah, and you get beyond that to joy. There's three pictures, really, of joy that are in here. And let's see if they move you a little bit. The first, if, if you just notice the word, the word joy comes up. It's the same word in Hebrew. It comes up three times in verse uh, 3. Uh, rejoice, joy, rejoice. And then there's a synonym for joy. So really there's four mentions of joy. Three of them are the same word. And they go back. If you want to catch some of the, the kind of joy this is, you go back to 1 Kings and you read in 1 Kings 4 verse 20, the people of Judah and Israel, same word is used here, people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. It's that joy word. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. Same word. Flip over a little bit to Second Kings. She looked, and there was the king. This is chapter 11, verse 14 of Second Kings. She looked, and there was the king, standing by the pillar as the custom was. The officers and the trumpeters were beside the king, and all the people of the land were rejoicing. There's that word again. And blowing trumpets. And then this, towards the end of that chapter. Together they brought the king down from the temple of the Lord and went into the palace, entering by way of the gate of the guards, the king then took his place on the royal throne. All the people of the land rejoiced. And the city was calm. That's the kind of joy. I mean, that, that's so all-encompassing. That is such a comprehensive security. The bad king has been put to the side. The new king has taken the throne. There is comprehensive security for life because there's a new kingdom that's been established. The enemies have been defeated that's pretty joyful. Here's, the other, here's another one that's in this text, another metaphor, and it's of the harvest. You notice in verse 3, rejoice bef- uh, they rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. At harvest time, I grew up in an agrarian small town. I know about harvest. I worked during harvest. It was a li- it's a little bit different because it, you know, not everyone's well-being was wrapped up in the harvest, but I, I catch some of this. In the ancient world, at harvest time, you're basically saying the weather, the weather cooperated. It's not, it wasn't raining during harvest, and so it wasn't all ruined. The barns are filling up, and we look at it and we go, the next few years are taken care of. Look at the harvest. It's time to celebrate harvest. And then plunder. I don't know if you caught this. The next phrase in verse 3 is, as soldiers rejoice when dividing the plunder. Plunder. I mean, I, I don't know if any of you have been involved in plundering uh, after a battle. Um, I'm going to guess there's not a lot of you. <laughs> um, so this is an ancient, I mean, there, it still happens, but this is a strong ancient analogy. And basically what it means is that the enemy who has been oppressing us has been routed and has run away or we've defeated them completely and they're no longer a threat. So much so we can relax. We can put down our weapons and we can you know, we can look around and see all the stuff that they've been raiding our villages and taking. We can now take it with more as we return to our wives and our moms. And, as, and at home, the, you know, the plunder is seen as the moment where it's certain that they're coming home. Our husbands, our sons are coming home. 
That's, that's joy. I mean, imagine that. That's joy. I don't know if you can feel it at all, um, especially if you suffer from the anti-exuberance syndrome that some of us have, and you're saying, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that joy should entice you. That is the joy that's available for Advent sojourners. And I think, let's just take it another level to what might that look like today. Psalm 126 actually kind of answers Isaiah. It's when people have come back from captivity and it feels like the the passage from Isaiah is a little bit coming true. And so Psalm 126 is like a song that comes from that time. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter. (laughs) Our tongues with songs of joy. I I think if you just think about laughter and singing, that is a part of that would be a part of all three of these analogies a new kingdom harvest plunder laughter and singing not the cynics laughter not um, the laughter of ridicule but the full-bellied weightless laughter of freedom and of joy of utter joy laughter that's what's available that is what is available along the advent journey and if you stay on it Now, in some ways, I'm intentionally not exactly saying why it's so good, but I'm trying to entice you, as this passage does, to keep journeying. And so if you keep journeying, part of it is the second tool, introspection. Hang on to introspection in the Advent journey. Uh, I think as we look at this passage, Isaiah 9, I think it's hard for us to enter fully into these words because it's hard for us to imagine the degree to which, in Isaiah's context, what is happening is there is an oppressed underdog who is hemmed in on all sides. And I just think in terms of Americans, I don't know if we, if we, if we quite resonate with that. In Jesus' day, I mean, certainly in the day it was written, Isaiah's day, that would have, it resonated. The Assyrians were closing in. You know, their time was limited. In Jesus' day, oh man, these words, when it says in verse 4, the, uh, you know, the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Oh, in Jesus' day, the, the, the Roman, the, the, the ironclad fist of Rome, you know, the occupiers. And this text spoke to the breaking of that, the rod that was on their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. But for us, being connected to a nation that's, you know, that we're considered a superpower, there's troops, you know, our troops in all different countries throughout the world, I don't know I don't know if we're stirred enough. I don't know if we've been introspective enough. And you might get a shallow joy because of shallow introspection. Failure to see the precarious nature of our own comfort. I mean, why is so why is plunder so powerful? Why is that analogy so powerful? It's so powerful and joyful because the threat of death was so real. The threat of of, of just Life, losing life, losing family, losing land, losing everyone you know and all, all that you held on to. So plunder is joyful because you know the deep, deep terror of war. Harvest. Why is harvest so joyful? You might not expect this. This is what the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery, sorry, the, the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery says in the entry for harvest. When a successful harvest was a Uh, While the successful harvest was a supreme image of abundance and blessing, failed harvests 
were an image of terror in the Bible. Indeed, so many references fall into this category that harvest finally emerges from the pages of the Bible as a precarious thing. Any number of things can destroy a harvest, the rain during harvest time, marauding enemies, fire or drought. In an agrarian milieu, the primal fear is a failed harvest. The reason harvest is so um, such a powerful imagery image of joy is because of if you know it is if you get the threat of a bad harvest for all of life in an agrarian society. And all of this is just to say, are, will you be during the season? Will you hang on to introspection? Will you be introspective enough to see the legitimate terror and precarious nature? that exists in our, in our still broken world. After Christ has come, risen from the dead, this is still the case. And to see the precarious nature of the comforts we have during the season, celebrating the season, the Advent journey is introspective and it leads you to, to ponder things you maybe don't want to ponder just about the world's gloominess of its darkness so that, so that you can get the full amount of joy and so that you acknowledge the seriousness of evil in this world that goes from evil dictators to broken marriages and the sin that connects all of it together and connects you and your own heart to all of the mess. There's a dark world and Advent has us longing for the darkness to have light shone finally for good. And the, so, I mean, so the introspection is basically an offer not to shrug your way through another... Advent season from one tryptophan hangover to another. Um, and stop, take your pulse, and allow for introspection amidst the serial consumption that's going on around you. Okay, so, have you grappled with the darkness? Don't ignore it. Don't anesthetize against it. Hold on to introspection. And finally, promises. Advent is about promises. Advent is full of promises. It's full of God's promises. Now, I know a little bit about promises because I know a little bit about parenting. Parenting is hard work, and I think it's hard because of promises. And I, you know, I feel like I know what I'm doing when I kind of decide and I plan, and I, and I know the promise that I'm going to offer. But I'm often caught with the difficulty of promise-making when something is brought to me out of the blue. You know, can we go to a park today? Just like a simple example. Um, and often then I'm calibrating how can I leverage that desire for behavior now that I desire. And um, it's a very careful business, this parenting work. It's very hard work. And the, a, bad, a promise that comes out in the end, a promise that comes out that I couldn't follow through on, um, that ends really bad. Okay, so that's a, a lesson that I've learned that I'm trying to become a more carefully calibrated promise maker with my kids. Because that ends in tears. It's horrible. It's not fun to promise more than you can come through on in the end. I much prefer, last year about this time, we were in Legoland during Thanksgiving break. I much prefer that promise. You know, for a couple months beforehand, there was all the waiting because this promise had been made. And I could stand by that promise every day and say, yeah, this is how many days till we go to Legoland. And, um, and, and it was just a promise that was on the calendar that our plans were all geared towards. We knew where we were staying. We could map it all. We could talk about it. It was so joyful and fun to look forward to this. It was so real. And it... And it happened, and it was good. I like those kind of promises. I don't like when I can't 
make a promise or when I can't follow through on a promise. Advent is about a God who is uninhibited by the promise-making process. He makes these grand promises. He's making these big promises. And Advent, part of the journey of Advent is hanging on to not just um, not just joy, not just introspection, but the promises that he makes. They're big. It, and they're, and they're, they're, they're so amazing. In the Garden of Eden, right after the fall, God says amidst kind of the curses of the fall, there's a promise hidden in there where he says that mankind's foot will crush the head of the serpent. It's this, this first just glimpse that he's, and Christians believe that that's going all the way through the story to the cross when, when Jesus finally um, on the cross crushes the head of the serpent and, and weakens Satan's ability to have his way with us because God has entered into the picture. I mean, this is a grand promise. God makes promises to Abraham in this broken world where he says, you know, you don't have any children now, but your descendants will be as numerous as the stars as the sand on the seashore. Maybe you know this story. And then, and then he promises way before any of this happens that there will be, there will be a time where they're captives for 400 years, but then he'll free them. And then you read about it in Exodus. He does, after they're, in, they're slaves for 400 years, and he brings this, this numerous, and yet sla- they're slaves, they're captives. They don't have power. And he brings them out from the biggest power in that part of the world, one of the biggest powers of the world at the time, Pharaoh. He brings them out right under his nose. It's a God of promise. And then with Isaiah. Isaiah is often, he's often mentioned in Advent. He's like the, one of the Advent prophets who's showing us God's promises for this season. A child will be born. A child is given. Will be born of a virgin. And then you read about in the Gospel of Matthew those promises being looked to and saying, here we have in Jesus. The promises have been followed through on. And you really have a church after Jesus um, died rose and ascended, you have a church that's just experiencing the, the most tangible kind of promise reality, living in the promises of God, that this, they're, they're just beside themselves with the reality that God has truly visited us, that, oh my goodness, all those stories, they line up, those promises in Isaiah, and they're beginning to tell these stories, and they're beginning to show how they could see in so many ways that Jesus lined up with all of those promises, oh my goodness, it's happened again, God has followed through on his promises, and then Jesus promises just before he leaves that he will be with them, and that he'll send the Holy Spirit, and then they have all these amazing uh, hard to explain things happening throughout the church that are like signs and wonders that God really is doing something amazing in this group. And God, and Jesus did in fact send his Holy Spirit and his promises. And Advent basically says, if you look back now to Jesus coming, as we look for him coming again, as you look back, you see in Jesus, when you look at Jesus, you see what it's like when God keeps his promises. And you see, you begin to see through Jesus how to live within a deep, deep trust that God keeps his promise. Mainly for us, I think, it's to start to realize that when it talks about the yoke that burdens them and the bar across their shoulders and the road of their oppressor, to think with a new kind of Christian memory, if you know if you begin to know the Bible a little bit, to think 
ahead when you read that passage to when Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Ah, the new king has come. The new king is in this world through this child that was born in Bethlehem. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Those are the words of Jesus. And that's a promise to hang on to in Advent. Let us pray. God of grace, teach us, help us to hang on to your joy, to taste it a little bit so that we want more. Help us to be introspective enough in ways that maybe we don't want to so that we can, we can see the deep need that our hearts have and that our worlds have and help us, Lord, to know the promises that answer that great need. May this season of Advent be so meaningful for us. I ask that there will be stories through our community of how you have shown up and you have helped people turn corners because of your grace, because of your Advent and coming into their life. Please be active and powerful and real in this community and in this city, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.